You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. Hi, it's good to see you. Yeah. Uh, look, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be studying the first 10 verses of Acts 16. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jeff. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of teaching God's Word most weeks. Um, we're going to look at this really great passage, which, you know, it's the kind of passage actually probably run by and not really pay a whole lot of attention to in the book of Acts because you're trying to get to something more interesting. But uh, this is going to be very interesting and really have a lot to say to people like you and me. Um, you ever seen the movie Untouchables? That's a dated film reference. Light, late 1980s, so those of us who are men in the room, we've seen this many times because Untouchables was like one of those tombstone kind of movies where you, you just get super excited about the, 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 the fight between Al Capone's Folks and uh, Elliot Ness's folks, it was a story about how actually Al Capone came to justice and how Elliot Ness was able to jail him ultimately for tax evasion. <clears throat> but it describes a story of the fight that went on between the FBI and Capone's gang here in Chicago. There's a scene in this film um, that is hard to watch. It's actually when Sean Connery, who is... Uh, Elliot Ness's buddy and is the one who's pushing Elliot Ness to be committed to the cause of seeing Capone's downfall. And he keeps asking him the question, what are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? And Elliot Ness is like, well, I'm prepared to do anything within the law. And he says, yeah, but then what are you prepared to do? Because the only way that you're going to get, the only way you're going to get Capone is if you're willing to go beyond what he's willing to do, and he's willing to do a lot to avoid being arrested. Anyway, it's, it's been like 30 years for the film, okay, so I'm going to give away one part of it. Uh, Sean Connery's character dies, and he's lying there on the ground because he's been all shot up, and Elliot Ness shows up, and he's hovering over him, and the last words that this guy says, spitting blood out of his mouth. Connery says, what are you prepared to do? <laughs> I, actually, I, I actually think that that's a line, what are you prepared to do, is a line actually that, if I could summarize a lot of what Jesus calls people to when it comes to following him, I actually think those are probably his words. Like, if you want to come and follow me, what are you prepared to do? Stories of guys leaving their nets behind, leaving their families behind, leaving everything behind to come and follow him. What, what does it look like, actually, to follow Christ? What kind of commitment is required to follow Jesus? What should we be willing to do or prepared to do if we want to follow him? So I think Acts 16, the first 10 verses, gives a, a, a couple of really poignant answers, and simply these two. I think in order to follow Jesus, you need to be willing to go and willing to wait. Willing to go and willing to wait. So let's, let's have a look at both of those. Um, first, <clears throat> I think you need to be willing to go. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 1. So Paul came also to, to Derby. And Lystra, there's a context, of course, to this. If you remember, last time we left our heroes, um, Paul and Barnabas, good buddies who've been traveling all over the place, they had a fight. It was called a sharp disagreement, and they split up. So this is my map of the ancient world, which, again, I don't draw maps well. Look, it's a fish. Anyway, <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so, so basically Jerusalem's here, Syrian Antioch is up here, they left from Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas have this big fight, and uh, actually, they, they, uh, one goes that way, 
one goes this way. Paul and Silas are up this region now. Now, Lystra and Derby are up in this sort of northern region. It's in modern-day Turkey. So they've traveled up to this location, and they came to Derby and to Lystra. This little word, Lystra, should, should bring back some memories. If you've been studying, us, studying with us in the book of Acts, the last time that the apostle Paul was in Lystra was when a bunch of Jewish opponents came in, spread a bad report about him, and had the, the, the rulers of the city drag him out thinking he was dead outside the city and leave him there. So I, I don't know about you, but if somebody had uh, dragged me out, out, on the, out to the outskirts of Indianapolis, I probably wouldn't go back. There's not a lot in Indianapolis that's worth going and seeing anyway. <laughs> but I'm kidding. But if, you, if they had tried to kill me, I wouldn't go back. But here's Paul. He's gonna, he cares about the church enough that he's going to go back to Lister to try to encourage these dear folks. Now, when he gets to Lystra, a disciple was there, and his name was, was Timothy. Now, you should know that name if you know your Bible. There's uh, two books in the Bible called First and Second Timothy, and they were written to this guy. In fact, Second Timothy is the last book that Paul ever wrote in his entire life. They are his dying words. So this guy is a pretty important dude to the Apostle Paul. He's, he's his protege. He's called his son in the faith. Like so, so Paul sees him as a son. Not yet. This is the first time they, they meet him. This is the time that they say, hey, young man, come and join us. So a disciple was there named Timothy. He, he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. Uh, this is actually pretty important. Uh, why? Well, um, Jewish lineage was tied to your mother. So if you have a Jewish mom, you're considered Jewish and along that ethnicity. Circumcision was the thing that Jewish parents did to their kids to demonstrate that those kids were part of what we call the covenant community, that they are, we are part of the nation of Israel, and it's a sign that I am committed to the Lord and I'm dedicated to him. But Greek people, all right, like Roman citizen type folks whose names were like Suetonius, they, they thought that circumcision was barbaric. But the Jews said, no, it's, it's actually a sign of the covenant that we have with God. So here you have this, this woman who's Jewish, but she's married a Greek man. This marriage would have been considered by most Jewish people uh, just totally out of bounds. I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament where the people of Israel go across into the promised land, and the, like, the big command was do not intermarry with the people of the land because they will draw your hearts away from God. This was something that was carried on throughout ages. They don't, don't intermarry with, with Gentiles. Don't intermarry with people whose hearts are not committed to God because what will end up happening is you'll have a kid and he won't be circumcised and he won't be part of the covenant community. Well, here we got Timothy, who is the embodiment of that issue. One more thing. In those days, if you met me, the first thing that we would talk about would be my family. I, I know we don't do that in our, in our society because most of us, I mean, in Chicagoland, for example, people come from all over. That's usually we ask people, where are you from and what do you do, right? Because for us, those are kind of the most important things. And when we ask, where are you from? We're just asking you, so, you know, where are you from? Los Angeles. Oh, I've been to Los Angeles. And now we can talk a little bit about Sunset Strip or whatever. But in those days, in fact, most days in the history of the world, the thing that was most important about you is who's your daddy? Whose family are you a part of? If you go to some small towns today, you'll get that. Something like, oh, you, you Daryl's kid? So if you put all of that together, here's, here's what you get. Um, everyone who met Timothy, if they take him on the mission... Everybody they meet who is Jewish, the first thing they're going to ask Timothy is, who's your daddy? His response is going to be Suetonius or whatever. 
And they are immediately going to be, wait a minute, how are you? You're a Jewish kid. Your mom's Jewish. Your dad is Greek. I, we don't need to do any further investigation about, you know, what's going on with your body parts to determine that you're apostate. And because you're apostate, you don't get to come and speak into the synagogues at all. So when Paul calls this guy, it is a little bit of a problem. It would be much easier if he had just called somebody who is, you know, fully, fully Jewish. His parents had done all the right things, but that's not Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. This is a big city that's further away from Lystra. It's a, you know, so, so the, the Christian community, both in his town, which was a little bit of a rural town in the nearest nearby city, all spoke well of him. Which is like saying, hey, look, everybody speaks well of him in Rockford and Chicago. So he's well known, model kid, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek, and you did, right? We ever, all of us know your father's Greek. We're not going to let you into our community. So circumcision is, it is. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, them being, of course, the different, uh, the, the different churches that have been planted. This is their second missionary journey. So they're going and visiting all of these churches that they already planted. Now they're coming along and they're delivering to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Remember in Acts 15, they all get together and they make a decision about whether or not you need to listen, about whether or not you need to be circumcised to be a good Christian. Okay, Luke means this ironically, I'm sure he does. Because what he's done here is basically said, just picture Timothy, okay, joins, he gets circumcised as an early 20 year old man and then he goes on this mission trip with Paul, and they, their job is to carry this, first the message of the gospel, and to clarify for the churches that remember those false teachers who came through and told you you need both Jesus and circumcision to be a good Christian? You don't. So Paul pulls out, you know, his doc, I just picture it. He pulls out his scroll and he starts reading and he says, okay, hear ye, hear ye, everybody. Here's what the Jerusalem council says. Um, you do not need, I know you've heard that you need to be circumcised to be a good Christian, but you do, it is not necessary for you to be circumcised. And I picture Timothy over going, wait, what? <laughs> what? This would have been good to know. Now, it's probably not like that. I'm sure that Timothy knew. I'm sure that Timothy knew. And the reason I, I say I'm sure he's new because this whole passage is trying to, is trying to explain to everybody um, how committed this Timothy guy is, both to the mission of God and to, and to God himself. Anything the Lord calls him to do, he's gonna do. If it means furthering the gospel, he's in. That's why he was well spoken of. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily because of this kid's willingness to go and to, to do these particular things. Now look, um, Luke holds Timothy up here as a model disciple willing to sacrifice for the Lord regardless of the cost. And it was a cost. What we're supposed to do when we read this passage is we're, we're supposed to take note of this. Luke didn't just decide that he was going to write about Timothy. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got to say something about when Timothy showed up. The way he writes about this is similar to the way he wrote about Barnabas, who was well-loved by all the... Like he's basically saying, I got to tell you about these amazing Christian guys. And when I tell you about these amazing Christian guys, I want to give you a picture of what genuine discipleship looks like. And that's what he's doing with this kid. Genuine disciples are willing to go. Where? Wherever. At what cost? At whatever cost. It means we surrender. Genuine Christians are marked by their willingness to give up to the Lord and say, Lord, this is your, I am yours. My lips are yours. My brain is yours. My hands are yours. My future is yours. My money is yours. My everything belongs to you. 
Okay, so can I... Objection! Wait a minute, Jeff, what are you doing here? What, okay, what you've taken, though, is you've taken a passage of Scripture that describes missionaries, and you're saying that what is true of missionaries should be true of all Christians. Don't you know, Jeff, that there are categories of Christians? There are some people who really committed to Jesus, missionaries, pastors, people who give a lot of money, people who plant churches. There's those people, and then there's the everyone else. So this passage should not be applied to people who are just everyone else. It's supposed to be talked about as missionaries. So I'm willing to say that missionaries should be really committed to the Lord and willing to go wherever the Lord calls them. But I've not been called so don't apply this to me. Don't say that this level of, of commitment is, is, is due me, okay? No, actually not okay. Um, look, uh, I know that in the Christian church, I've been drawing this this last week. I've been teaching some classes this last week. And so I've been drawing this picture for people because it's a common, common picture that's been used in lots of churches and Christian circles that are kind of in our you know, frame of of experience. And it, it's, it's this. So the, how it goes is this is the line of belief, meaning that if you're under the line, you don't believe in Jesus, and you're above the line, you do. If you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, we would say that Jesus is outside of your life. There's a throne in your life, but Jesus is outside of the throne in your life. He's outside your life altogether. And because of this, Right, You will have a Christless eternity. Because you don't want him in your life, you won't have him forever and ever and ever. Above the line, though, there are different kinds of Christians. By the way, this, I'm just describing the way that the Christian church has taught publicly in lots, for lots and lots of years. Above the line, you, of course, have... Your, uh, your, your life, and you can have Jesus in your life, but not on the throne. So, so you know, this, 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 you're saved, but you're not fully committed. You're not Timothy, right? The Timothys of the world are a different kind of Christian. They're the ones who have Jesus in their life, and he's on the throne. So, of course, everybody needs to be here. Of course, we want everyone to be with Jesus on the throne of their life. But if you don't, it's okay. You're still saved. It just means you won't, I don't know, get extra credit in heaven. You won't live in the best communities or whatever in the new heavens and new earth. But you'll still be there. So, according to this, there are two kinds of Christian people. Actually, no. And, and when I say no, I, I mean uh, when you get into the, into the scriptures, one of the things that you learn very quickly is actually when Jesus calls people, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he bids them come and die. That to be a Christian is to submit and bow your knee to the king. And surrender everything to him. That's normal for everyone. There's no special missionary faith. People who go out on missions have the same faith that you have, the same faith that I have, the same faith that an accountant has, same faith that the that that the that the home homemaker has, same faith that same faith that same faith that. There's all you're just a Christian. And so the question is, what are Christians expected to do? In terms of their commitment. Oh, okay, let's take a short tour. Uh, Luke, or sorry, the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He referred, this is about a necklace though, right? Seriously, isn't that a crazy thing for you to say in the first century when the cross was an instrument of torture? It was like the worst thing possible. And of course, Jesus is speaking about where he's headed. 
And he's saying, listen, if you want to come after me, you got to follow me no matter how far it goes. And it might mean death, but if you want to come after me, you deny yourself, turn away from yourself, pick up your cross, and you, took, you follow me. Wherever it is that I go, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life surrenders to me, says, I am no longer my own. You get to define for me all of the things. My full allegiance is to you, Jesus, and you alone. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Uh, Luke 14. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, uh, wouldn't you think this would be a great moment for the, like, I don't know, the soft message? When the, the crowds are here, Jesus, don't say, any, say anything to tick them off, right? Just, we finally got them to come, just don't, don't ruin it. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, yeah, that's what they, they're all doing, Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not <laughs> hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, this is easy, yes, and even his own life, he cannot meet a disciple. And you and I are like, what are you talking about? Hate. Well, look, what he means is turn away from. Your allegiance is no longer to your family. It's no longer to your spouse. It's no longer to any. It's to Jesus. Anyone who comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Wait a minute. What do you, you cannot, right? He doesn't say he cannot be my missionaries. Cannot be my extra special credits. They cannot be a disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, there it is again, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. First Corinthians. First uh, Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 20, simple phrase, for you were bought with a price. What, what's that from? What kind of language is that? Well, it's from the slave market. And he intends it to be from the slave market. You were bought with a price. You, 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 were, you were for sale. You, you actually were a slave of sin and the devil. And the Lord came along and said, I want that one. He redeemed you, hear the language? He purchased you so that you are now free. Yes, free from the, from the devil, but you're not free from the slavery to Christ. So glorify God in your body. Because whose body is it? The one who bought you. Uh, you ever noticed in the beginning of the books, uh, um, at the beginning of some of the, the books, Here's Paul writing later with Timothy. This is the book to Philippians, the first verse of Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, uh, servants. This, this, this Greek word is actually the word slave. And it's supposed to be the word slave. You saw, have you ever signed at the bottom of a letter? It, you know, uh, for me, Jeff Bucknam, uh, doctor, doctor. Uh, THM, BA, and then I throw in as many certificates I got for like, you know, whatever there. You want to you impress people. You're defining, you're defining yourself with your education, your experience, or my title, lead pastor of teaching and vision. What is the title that Paul, the apostle, chooses for himself when he writes to the Philippians? He's choosing slave. <laughs> Why does he use the word slave? Well, because Jeffy was bought with a price. Because his understanding of himself is as a servant, like a servant without a choice for this savior, for this one who came and purchased him. He's a slave. And that has all 
of the significance that it's supposed to have for him. Following Jesus means commitment. It means surrender. When God calls us, he bids us come and die. There were uh, one of my favorite little stories uh, that I'm not even sure it's true, but I, I love it. It's actually about uh, this group of indigenous people during one of the wars that Great Britain got into in Southeast Asia a number of years ago. Anyway, they, uh, they were trying to get in behind the lines of the, of the enemy, but they didn't have a way, thick forest, right? Thick jungle, and didn't, they didn't have a way to get into that area because you know n- nobody would have the courage to jump into that area with paratroopers and stuff, at least at that time. They just didn't have the people. So they went to a local a tribe called the Gurkhas. And they said they were, they, you know, they were allies with the Gurkhas. And they said, would you guys be willing to jump out of an airplane and land behind the enemy lines and try to take the, take the ground for us so that we can then bring our military in? And the Gurkha uh, tribe leader said, well, okay, let me think about it. I'm going to have a council meeting. And so they went away and they had a council meeting, came back to the British commander. And they said, we, we, we're, we'll, we'll, we're willing to do it on two on two um, promises from you. Uh, number one, we need you to fly really slow. And number two, you can't fly any higher than a thousand feet off the ground. And the commander's like, I, like we can't do that. If, if, first of all, we can't fly that slow, that close to ground. And you, you, there will be no time for your parachutes to open. And the Gurkha leader said, oh, oh, we'll have parachutes? Oh, yeah, we'll do it. We'll be happy to do it. So they, so they were ready at a 100-story high building to just jump out of an airplane as long as it was going sl- slow enough. O- okay, right, there's some commitment. Honestly, it's, pr- it's probably a pretty good picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Hey, I want you to jump out there. Okay! <laughs> Timothy, I need, we need you to get circumcised. Okay! You're going to suffer a whole bunch of things. Okay! Of course, you and I, when we hear that, one of the challenges that immediately comes to our mind is, yeah, that's great pastor speak, but you're going to have to give me a reason. Why, why commit like that? What's the motivation? Who does that? Well, um, I'll give you a couple of motivations. If you're a Christian, if you're somebody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he died for your sins, rose on the third day for justification, and he will come again in glory. If you believe those things, I'll give you two motivations. Number one, uh, you should do it because of what you've got. And number two, you should do it because of what you'll get. You should do it because of what you got. And you should do it because of what you'll get. What have you got? Well, um, let's see. Before the foundations of the world, God walked across, the, saw across the, the, the entirety of history of the world, and he chose you. He chose you. He knew your name. He reached out. He didn't pass you by. Should have passed you by. Passed by a lot of others. He reached out, said, I'll have this one, please. There was nothing to draw him to you. He took you. He made you his own. And you were born, and at a particular time in your life, the Lord orchestrated circumstances around you so that you would hear the gospel message and that you would respond in faith. So much of your history involves him orchestrating these things behind the scenes that you didn't even, didn't even know about. Also that you would come to faith in Christ. He then takes you as his own, calls you his adopted son or daughter, and promises that he's going to lavish on you all blessings forevermore. He will keep you, he said. I will, because I grabbed you and chose you from the beginning, I'm going to keep you. Regardless of how bad your desires are to turn away, I will always chase you down. You will never get away from my love. 
try as we might, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to relieve the God we love, he's He grabs us back, he brings us home, welcomes us into his kingdom, throws on the robe over and over and over again, and then we die in Christ. At that moment, we stand before him. And he says to us, because of not our righteousness, but the righteousness that's in Jesus, that is now ours because of faith, he says, I count this one not not guilty, righteous, deserving of eternal blessing because they're in Christ. Then he takes you and he places you in his heavenly kingdom and the new heavens and new earth when he returns and the entire world forever and ever you will rule together with Christ and the other believers this new world where there is no pain, there is no heartache, there are no tears, there is only joy and each day is better than the last. Every adventure is better than the last. Forever and ever, every morning is a new joy. Forever and ever and ever. And you had nothing in you to draw his attention. It is all of grace. So what have you got? It's hard to describe what we got. It's not like I can say, well, you've got a billion dollars, because a billion dollars is a pittance compared to what this is. So, so, so what have you got? Now, if you start thinking about what you've got and what the Lord has done, and it starts to get deep inside of your spirit, you start thinking to yourself, what do I do in response to something like that? What do, what do I do, Lord? And the answer is, give me everything. I want everything. I'll give you everything. But I want everything. And you find yourself like a woman who's breaking into a dinner party and taking her perfume and pouring it on the feet of Jesus and rubbing it with her hair and crying tears. You don't care who sees you. You don't care what people know about you. All you want to do is worship this one. That's it. Whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want. You can, have, you can have it all. Or, or, as Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on or by the mercies of God, which he described, which I just told you about, the mercies of God in your election, salvation, glorification, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, now this version says spiritual, the The right thing here to say, in my opinion, is reasonable. It is a reasonable worship. It is reasonable for you to respond to that kind of grace with everything you've got laying down on an altar. So why should you commit your whole life to Christ? Uh, Because of what you got. And because of what you'll get. Wait a minute, what do you mean what what I'll get? Right, okay, so but Matthew 13, verse 44, uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found, you picture yourself, you got, seriously, you got that old man, you know, beep, 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 guy on the beach who should put more clothes on, beep, beep, beep. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, beep, 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 he starts digging it up and he found it but then he covered it back up because he doesn't want anyone else to see it. And then in his joy, he goes to the real estate agent and he goes and he sells everything he has. He has a fire garage sale. And you show up to buy stuff from this guy and he's like, you're trying to pull one over on him. So I'll take the TV for $40. Yes! He's smiling, take it all! You're like, this guy's an idiot. Selling away all the important stuff in the world. He's like, no, you can take it. You want a two for one here? In his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that. He buys that field because what he finds in that field is greater than anything he could ever have. What do you get? You get Jesus. 
What, what, do you, what do you get? You get the greatest thing in the universe. The greatest knowledge, the greatest person, the greatest experience in the universe. Not for one moment, but forever and ever. Amen. So you've gotten a lot. You're getting a lot. It actually seems like it's not just reasonable. You're getting a pretty good deal for your life. That's a pretty good trade. Anything else you want to waste your life on besides that? Any greater return than that? So you got to be willing to go. Second, last. You got to be willing to wait. Okay, so I'm going to give my life to Christ, and it's going to mean everything. All right, Lord, lead the way. Lord's like, yep, let's do that. Verse six, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, Phrygia, Galatia, Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Everybody following this? Yeah, you good? Uh, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Uh, you ever had a, a bad flight cancellation during the holidays? And you're like, okay, so we started. We're going to go to Florida for the holiday. And then we get to the... We get to the airport and they've canceled everything because they're Southwest, whatever. They canceled everything. They canceled everything. And so now we got to find another flight. So I went to the other flights. They're all full, but they also got canceled. And so then I was like, Milwaukee. I heard that Milwaukee might have some people going. So I, we get in our car. We drove through the, the, the snow that's now falling up to Milwaukee. And we realize, oh, we can get a flight from there. We get booked on the flight. We get out on the tarmac. And then they say, I'm sorry, Florida just closed down because they don't want you. Right? So, okay, so now you can't go. But, but you're like, they're saying, hey, but you can, you, if you drive in, it's different. They just don't want flying people. So, oh, okay, so you get in your car and you chart driving. And then, of course, they shut down every highway going out of Chicago and you're stuck, so you go back home. And you tell your friends about it. That's what he just did. Because here's, here's what happened. All right. This is their little, their little tour. Do-do-do, red. Okay? Bithynia is up here. So what he says, just so we get it right, I, I marked it. Here we go. They went through the region of Phrygia, and Galatia, Phrygia and Galatia. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted, here's Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus stopped them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So they, do, 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 do. you want to go this? Nope. We want to go. Nope. nope. That's what they did. Now here's the funny part about this for me. I'm like, oh, okay, they did that, but what stopped them? Did you see it? What's what stopped them? Um, okay, went through Phrygia, Phrygia, and Galatia, having been wait a bit forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, when you go into commentators and they try to make tell you, okay, what does this mean? They're like, we don't know. And we don't know. It's not made clear. In what way did the Spirit of Jesus stopped them from going into. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, same thing. In what way did they get stopped? So there are commentators like, well, it's probably a prophecy, right? Or a dream. But I read this and I'm like, well, actually, prophet, the language here in the first one, uh, being forbidden. This word is used when uh, the disciples forbid or stopped 
the little kids from coming to Jesus. They physically barred them from going to Jesus. It's not, a pro- see, prophecies don't forbid you. Prophecies give you information and you can choose to do it or not to do it. Agabus, later in the book of Acts, will come to Paul and say, when you go, if you go to Jerusalem, your hand's gonna be tied like this. And Paul's like, okay. And he goes to Jerusalem and his hands are tied like this. To forbid someone is actually literally to stop them from going to that location. Stop them. Also, this second one, uh, they attempted to go into Bithynia. That sounds like, uh, yeah, yeah, we're just talking, they, they attempted. The actual verb tense here is they were attempting. It, it describes a continuous action, past tense, continuous action, meaning it's the same like of me saying, um, well, I tried to get in, or I was trying to get in, which, is, which, which conveys a repeated action. Well, the second one does. So they were repeatedly attempting to get into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. And that sounds like providence to me. You say, why are you making a big deal about this? Because he's describing yours and my life, isn't he? Or do you make plans and everything just goes right according to it? Or you go, you go one direction and just tickety-boo, man. I'm going to reverse engineer this. And yep, everything worked out because I'm amazing. No, 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 no. Dude, you're, you're on plan Z, Z at this point. It's taken an awful lot of time. But you, you keep trying and trying one thing and trying another. And the Lord is like, now nah, wait. Now nah, wait. Now nah, wait. You can imagine Paul and... And Timothy here saying, don't you want us to be in the, like, this seems like something that you'd really, you'd really like for us to be able to go into these locations. Finally, a man of Macedonia was standing there in a dream, urging Paul, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is up here. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia, go across the water to help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia. You guys, um, in Genesis 22, where Isaac is supposed to be offered as a sacrifice by Abram, God comes to Abram and says, I want your son. This is how it reads. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, And I want you to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering at one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abram rose early in the morning. It doesn't take a lot for me not to raise early in the morning, but one thing that I would not get up early for is to sacrifice my kid. But he did. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. This language, when it says immediately Paul went into Macedonia, is the same kind of immediate obedience that defines a follower of Jesus. So despite all of the wiggles and turns and everything, Jesus, uh, Paul's ready like, I'm ready to go, man. Whatever. If you turn me away from that, turn me away from this, turn me away from that, and in the moment you tell me to go, I'm good. I'm good going and I'm good waiting. Because I know that you're in charge of all the things around me. I know everything that's happening is because you want it to happen that particular, that particular way. Following Jesus means willingness to go and to wait. When we become disciples, we surrender everything to his will. Look, you, you know this. If you've been a Christian for a while, you, you know this. Because there are passages of scripture that tell you this. Uh, come now, you say, James 4. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Everything that you do, every moment that you have is under the sovereign providence of God. He's in the going as much as he's in the waiting, as much as he's in the going. The problem that we have, quite honestly, is we struggle a lot waiting. 
Because my question with this passage, just as we finish this, right? My question with this passage is why, why, why put them through the, you know, weaving trip? We tried to go to Bithynia, it didn't work. Tried to go to Asia, it didn't work. Why not just back when he's in Lystra say, hey, I want you to go to Macedonia? Wouldn't you, isn't that what you want? That's what I want. Isn't that what you want? When you finish college, you say, he says, I want you to go take this job. You'll be there for 33 years. Okay, I'll do that. Instead, you're sitting there waiting. Okay, Lord, when's this door gonna open? I've applied 70 places and none of the doors are open. Where are you, Lord? Just wait. I want to wait. I want to go. Can you just tell me where we're headed, how we're going to get there? Why does he do this? Why, why does the Lord make us wait? Why does the Lord take us in these directions? And I, I just got to tell you, the reason the Lord does this is because he wants you to surrender to his every day of your life. He wants you to surrender to him every single day of your life. Have you ever noticed that in the Lord's prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread? Where does he get that? Well, it's actually from, from Genesis and the story about God giving the manna in the wilderness. And the rules were when they got into the wilderness, the manna showed up every morning. But if you tried to take extra so that you didn't have to show up the next day and trust the Lord for it that day, it would go rotten in your, in your house. They were never allowed to take more than they needed. They needed to trust the Lord every single morning for what they were going to get that day, their daily bread. You know why the Lord tells us to wait? Because you and I think that we're in control of everything. We, we, we think we control the future. We think that by a certain application of our wisdom or our voodoo or whatever it is, we can make everything work out exactly what, like we want it to. And the Lord places in our lives regular moments of waiting so that we have to trust that he alone can provide. I actually almost went to jail. <laughs> I didn't tell the search committee this, so you know. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. It's actually a really important part of my history. I worked at a Christian camp uh, a number of years ago in the 1990s. And uh, when I worked at the Christian camp, uh, we had a cabin and they were really rambunctious. And they wanted to wrestle all the time. And their goal was to give you, to pull your underwear up, which they called a wedgie. So wrestle, wedgies and stuff. The kids were doing it all the time. And they used to say to me and the other guy who was a counselor in the cabin, oh, what, what if they do it? What if they do it? Oh, they'll probably kill you. If you like. And we didn't, we didn't until the whole cabin got, jumped on us one day. And we both were like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And so we grabbed one or two kids and we, you know, and they were laughing. And it was just so funny. Okay, so fast forward nine months. One of the kids is at his table in his house and he's telling stories, glory stories about the wedgies. And his mom's like, wait, what? What happened? So she calls the local police and the local police come and interview me and the other guy and a few others. And they said, did you give this kid a wedgie? And I was like, yeah, I did. I did, I did absolutely. How many? Just one. What happened? Well, they were jumping on us, and they're just, it was the only way to get them off. It was a game we were playing. We did it. Well, it was this time of the time when people were like, oh, my gosh, that's terrible, and you, you were abusing them, and these sorts of things. So I went through a series of months where they prepared for trial. They kept offering me, you know, a, a, a way to get out of it by saying, if you just plead guilty, you can just, you, you know, you just do community service for a year or whatever. And I was like, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Well, I said, yeah, you, you assaulted him. No, I, did, I didn't assault. We went to trial. I sat there for uh, a full day, uh, nine-hour trial. We had to select the jury. The jury gets into the box. We go through this entire trial. I remember sitting at the end. My lawyer turned to me, and he said, he said I don't know if we're going to win this. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means that, you know, the sentencing is going to be something like three years in prison. And What? Like I'm 19 years old. I sat in the front row of that courtroom while the jury was out deliberating. My friend Eric sat next to me, he didn't say anything. He just put his arm around me. And I remember sitting there 
saying in my head over and over, Lord, if your plan for me is that I'm in prison, I will be your man in prison. And Lord, if your plan for me is not to be in prison, I will be your man in prison. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I grab that control over and over again, but the Lord usually reminds me that I never had it. And maybe that's what the Lord is reminding you of right now. And maybe your life is the way it is right now because the Lord wants you to hear what I just said, that to follow Jesus means that you're willing to go and it also means that you're willing to wait and you have to wait. He'll show up when the time's right. He'll give you a dream in Troas or whatever. He'll open a door when the time is right. But for right now, the lesson to learn in all of it is that he is Lord and we are his. He'll make a way when, there's, when it's the right time. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your, your goodness to us. Uh, your plans are immaculate. It's so hard to say when I'm sitting in the middle of them trying to figure out what in the world you're doing. So there are lots of people who are listening to me right now who have a hard time following you because of your call to go and because of your call to wait. So I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, encourage all of us to serve you with everything we've got. Father, we have a habit of grabbing hold of the very things that we let go of. So I pray, Lord, that our actions of surrender to you would not be something that we try to grab and pull closer to ourselves, but that you'd repeatedly remind us that we are not our own, we've been bought with a price, and that you are Lord. Give us Jesus in all of it, we pray. It's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.